Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of surgeons explain new prescribing guidelines regarding the use of opioid painkillers after various operations and medical procedures. We're doing our best in order to try to not have patients be in pain, but to kind of quote right size and quote our, our prescribing habits. A toxicologist provides an overview of the impact of the opioid crisis on central New York. We recognize that not every hospital in New York State has addiction medicine providers. So we're trying to leverage technology to say, can we bring that expertise to the emergency department without physically having that person there? And a bioethicist shares how he broke his dependence on oxycodone and what it taught him about the American healthcare system. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll get an update from a toxicologist about the impact of the opioid crisis in Central New York. Then, we'll hear from a bioethicist who learned a lot about the healthcare system after he became addicted to oxycodone. But first, two surgeons go over new opioid prescribing guidelines for surgical patients. After you have an operation, your surgeon may prescribe an opioid pain reliever. But these days, because of the opioid crisis in America, the surgeon may think twice about writing that prescription. In the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about a change in prescribing habits are Dr. Jeffrey Albright, a colon and rectal surgeon, and Dr. Flavia Soto, a bariatric surgeon. They're both assistant professors of surgery at Upstate, and they're both involved in an effort to establish appropriate opioid levels for 21 different surgical procedures. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for, Thank having, you for having us. Yes. <clears throat> so is it more common today to see patients who refuse pain medications out of fears of addiction? Um, I think um, in general, uh, patients and doctors, are we are more conscious about it. Uh, and it depends. The answer would be depends if it, if it is a patient that already is receiving treatment from different reasons prior um, when they come to see us. But there's no questions that we're all very conscious about opioids these days. Is there a benefit uh, for a patient who wants to sort of tough it out and go without pain medicine, even if they're in pain? Dr. Albright? I'd say generally there is not a true benefit from the perspective of how they otherwise would recover. Um, I think we definitely want our patients to be up and um, getting around, uh, making the recovery a little bit easier. Um, but on the flip side, I think that we also recognize that there's a very small percentage of people who will um, go on to uh, develop some degree of dependency and addiction down the road. So it, it is kind of a double-edged sword, but in general, from the immediate recovery, no, there's no benefit in avoiding the, the pain control. Does it, does it help your body if you're not in pain? Does it help your body heal, Dr. Soto? Absolutely. I, I mean, pain um, triggers um, inflammatory response. Um, it's not about only feeling the pain that is very uncomfortable, but it's all the extras that our body um, tends to produce that plays a role in the healing process for sure. So, and the stress response. Um, so yeah, it's, it is important for the patients to be comfortable 
um, and have adequate pain medication accordingly uh, in order to, for instance, to move and get out of bed and recover faster. So um, the answer is yes, it's not, it's not good to have pain and tough it up. Um, there's a reason why we have to control pain adequately. Okay. And to add to her point, it's one of the reasons why um, it's become very important a lot of the um, surgeries that we do that we've focused on something we call multimodal pain uh, management, which basically means rather than just using the opioids, which was kind of the mainstay um, in years past, we tend to choose a number of different medications when you add them all together, tend to give uh, better overall pain control and then decrease how much of the narcotics or opioid medications we, we would use. And so for instance, we may give people acetaminophen, which most people know is Tylenol, or ibuprofen or naproxen, um, or a combination of all of these medications together, plus some other ones that the uh, public is probably less aware of. Um, and by doing that, we hopefully um, provide the better pain control and um, are able to provide uh, or give our patients fewer opioid pain medications. And each of those medicines you mentioned, they, they all work a little bit differently on pain, right? They have a different mechanism? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, tell us about the effort that you're both involved in. How did you get involved in this, and what is what is its aim? All right. So we belong to um, this collaborative group uh, that is uh, sponsored somehow by Excels, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, local. Um, and Dr. Albright and myself, we are the surgeons um, champions for each campus downtown and community campus for upstate. Um, so the idea of this group is to present quality improvement projects and opioids um, as um, became um, such a uh, problem, current problem, uh, we decided to all together um, to take this at, at, a, at a different level and um, try to implement um, efforts in order to decrease um, amount of prescriptions that were given to our patients based on different surgeries. Um, so that's what we started, um, and we implemented in both campuses the same thing. And it go, it's way beyond just upstate physicians. It's, it's like you mentioned, um, Excellus, but other right. hospitals and health agencies, right? Correct. Um, 18 hospitals from central New York and a little bit outside that boundary, they are involved. Um, and we all are following this uh, same QIP or quality improvement project. Okay. So you recognize this issue and as a group decided you wanted to do something about it. So Correct. what can you as physicians do? So number one, to be aware that this is a problem. Number two, be conscious at the time that we're uh, prescribing. And so what we did in the last uh, meeting we had with this group is to decide what would be a fair and lower amount versus what we used to do before uh, for surgeries, meaning how much less will be prescribed per type of surgery. So we have a list of different surgeries that will involve certain general surgery cases, some, some other specialty cases. And so arbitrary, we did both at that time. Um, and we just set a number in terms of um, decreasing the amount of pills that we are given to the patients after these procedures. And, and to add what she um, just commented on, 
I think a lot of this is born out of uh, the literature. I mean, previously, before we were more aware of this, um, our goal is we wanted to make sure that our patients were comfortable at home and, and really weren't wanting for pain control. And, you know, we see it in the news today with, uh, you know, Purdue Pharma and Johnson & Johnson and all the issue related to prescribing. And really, when we were in training, the what everybody was being taught was addiction is actually a very rare thing that you see. Um, and so go ahead and just give people the pain medications that they need. And so when over the course of time they looked at... Um, really how much of these pain medications people are actually using based on their prescription, they estimated that probably between 50 and 60% of the narcotics that are being prescribed for people are actually never used. And so, um, you know, a lot of those pills then end up going in the drawer. And uh, then further, um, they recognized that of that people who became addicted to medications like or to uh, drugs like heroin, the majority of those people actually started by using prescription pain medications. And so uh, both it's kind of the combination of us recognizing or over-prescribing because nobody had really followed up on it. Um, and then now that we're dealing with this problem and have a better recognition of the role that we may play in this, um, you know, we're doing a, a, our best in order to try to not have patients be in pain, but to kind of, quote, right-size, and quote our, our prescribing habits. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two surgeons, Dr. Jeffrey Albright and Dr. Flavia Soto. And they're part of a, a group of physicians and health organizations that are looking at ways to um, reduce or change the prescribing habits of physicians and surgeons. So I want to ask you how you went about reaching a consensus on the appropriate opioid levels for these procedures. Um, which ones typically require the most pain relief? Which procedures? So the one, uh, um, in theory, the ones that are bigger surgeries or imply open procedures versus laparoscopic, those are the ones that might um, um, generate uh, more, pain more pain control or... I don't know if you agree with that. The more involved, of, I would say, inflammatory response. And but I don't know if Jeff, uh, you have something I, to I add think, to that. I think from the the literature I've seen on it, um, you know, our our uh, orthopedic colleagues who um, treat a lot of people with for arthritic type pain, so mm -hmm. people with chronic back pain, people with uh, arthritis of their knees and hips who would then undergo knee replacement or hip replacement or back surgery. Um, those are the ones where we tend to see higher uh, number of pills being prescribed, but it's also probably recognizing that that's also a group that more likely has chronic pain associated with it and may be on mm -hmm. chronic pain medications and so not aren't necessarily naive to the medications or a little bit more tolerant and may require more of the opioid pain medications in order to control it. But in, in general, I agree that the bigger the operation, the bigger the incision, um, in, in general, that tends to um, correlate with, with more pain. So does the pain come from the, the nerves that have been disrupted during the surgery? Or w like what causes the pain when you're recovering from surgery? It's 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 a series of events uh, from the physiopathology standpoint. Uh, when every time that we do an incisions, we generate like an inflammation and runs through nerves and then connects to the brain and the spine. So it's a series of events, and the aftermath is also the inflammatory reaction that that this generates. Also, that causes a lot of the inflammation per se per surgery that can cause extra pain as well. 
So you mentioned laparoscopic surgeries, yeah. which are done with tiny Small incisions, incisions. Um, and more things are being done that way these days. Correct. So naturally there would be maybe less pain recovering from those, right? Correct. Actually, it correlates with faster recovery, shorter length of a state in the hospital, and less pain as well. So how do you as a surgeon decide how many days worth of pills to send someone home with? That's a great question. Uh, to go ahead, Jeff, if you want to. I mean, I, I think that currently that's kind of a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, at this point, really trying to standardize our perception of, of uh, what's appropriate for our patients to receive after their operations. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that we have, it does take a lot of judgment to, to a certain degree to recognize, okay, these operations are about this level of, of invasiveness and therefore we're going to prescribe, you know, five pills or 10 pills or 15 pills for, for these patients and recognize that if we underprescribe, we can always give a refill. Um, and if you overprescribe, you're never going to get those pills back. And right. then that increases the access for what we call diversion or utilization of the pain for purposes that aren't intended. Yeah, but- I would agree with that. Um, there's nothing written stone in the end of the day. We just have to have a good assessment. You know, there's also literature that um, shows that if we are more aware of how much pain medication the patient would use while in the hospital, if it is an, uh, a procedure that is being done with an overnight or staying in the hospital, we can have a sense of how much pain medication we we'll, would we'll need to prescribe. But again, we have to be conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And because um, it's different for each patient, right? I mean, the pain threshold for one person may be very different. Correct, but at the same time, there's certain procedures that we, based on experience and evidence, that we can say how how many pills we can prescribe. But that's true in terms of what Jeff was uh, mentioning before. If these are patients that they have already issues and they're taking medication, pain medication from before coming in, so that makes it a little more, um, you know, not complicated, but a little more uh, uh, challenging. Okay. And I think we also have to uh, work on managing expectations as well. I mean, I think Absolutely. that that's something from before the operation that we can tell our patients that we're, we're not going to be able to make them complete, completely pain-free after the operation. We can only do what we can do in order to manage it to a level which um, permits for them to do most of their normal daily activities. And as long as they have that expectation going in, I think that they become more satisfied recognizing, okay, I'm not going to be pain-free, but at least I'll be reasonably comfortable. Correct. Yeah. Well, okay. in each of your specialties with the weight loss surgery and with colorectal surgery, do is there anything you can tell your patients to do, I, I, I got, you know, manage expectations, but can they do something actively beforehand to make things go better in recovery? Absolutely. I think we share the, the same QIP also. We, we, both started actually Jeff has uh, almost two years right that you started ERAS that is um, quality improvement project in order to it's in case recovery after surgery meaning um, a comprehensive approach and multidisciplinary um, multi-drug I would say in order to decrease the length of a stay make patients more comfortable and also approach pain within all that boundary um, so I don't know if you want to share what you have done because it's a little different sometimes, but at the same time, targeting pain control, decreased length of a state and early recovery and go home sooner in a good shape. But if you want to share some of the measures that were yeah, implementations, I mean, yeah. You, you did a great job of really summarizing it because it's a, um, I mean, we really focus on 
what things can be done, you know, in the days before the operation, what can be done as early as like right before the operation while they're in the in the holding area before they go to the operating room, um, things intraoperatively and then postoperatively. Uh, we really put together um, about 15 to 20 different little things that when you add them together really make a big difference uh, in patients' outcomes. And we, um, just in the last couple of years after rollout of this, um, We've seen, you know, uh, we've shortened hospital stays by more than a day. Um, we have not seen any increase in readmissions. We have seen decreased complication rates associated with it, decreased mortality. So there's a lot of, um, it's really a win-win for our patients in this situation. And so it was rolled out initially in a lot of places with colorectal surgery because um, we're operating on an organ that obviously um, is not the cleanest. And so we actually had a fairly high complication rate overall associated with it. And since we've seen such uh, success with that, we're all, it, it's really being expanded to a number of different other, both surgical and even non-surgical um, things related to the hospital. Yeah, adding to that, uh, one of the metrics actually we're tracking and intervening before surgery and during surgery and after surgery is pain control. So we do, you know, significant amount of efforts in order to decrease the pain after the patients they wake up from surgery. So we actually pre-medicate these patients before even going for surgery. And so we use, you know, the multimodal approach. We can do neuroblocks. We can do Tylenol, as uh, Jeff mentioned before. And those are drugs that they sound like they're old-fashioned, but we're coming back with understanding them. Pain is a little more complex, and we can decrease the opioid intake after if we do all this together at once and before surgery. Bariatric surgeon Dr. Flavia Soto and colorectal surgeon Dr. Jeffrey Albright are both assistant professors of surgery at Upstate. Thank you both for being here. Thank I'm you. Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the impact of the opioid crisis on Central New York. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our community and the nation is feeling the effects of the epidemic of opioid abuse. To talk about its impact here in central New York, I have with me in the HealthLink on Air studio toxicologist and doctor of pharmacy Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center. He's also a clinical assistant professor in the School of Pharmacy at Binghamton University and the director of the Opioid Research Center for Central New York. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Eggleston. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. So over the summer, the Washington Post published data from the Drug Enforcement Administration, and it showed exactly how many opioid pain pills were dispensed from every pharmacy in America from 2006 to 2012. And in Onondaga County, for example, it was almost 124 million pills or 38 pills per person per year during that time. Do those numbers surprise you? They don't. Um, I think that... We have forgotten a little bit about prescription opioids in the U.S. Um, the way that this crisis has kind of unfolded uh, really came uh, in three phases. Uh, so in the late 2008s, 9s, we started seeing an increase in the number of patients dying from prescription opioids. In order to try to uh, mitigate that, uh, the number of opioid prescriptions in the U.S. began to drop 
Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was done without providing resources to patients who had developed a substance use disorder or an addiction. And as a result, these patients were forced to turn to alternatives, uh, most commonly heroin, which we then saw become the leading cause or most increasing cause of, of opioid-related deaths. And now, most recently, we've seen fentanyl enter the U.S. market, and fentanyl has taken over as the leading cause of death. But that does not mean that these other causes have gone away. In fact, prescription opioids are still the second most common reason that people die from opioids in the United States. Wow. And a lot of times, these are not uh, necessarily just patients with substance use disorder, right? That is a piece of it. Patients can develop a substance use disorder or addiction after they're prescribed an opioid for pain control for legitimate reasons. Uh, but you're also at risk for unintentional opioid overdose just from using these products if you have certain risk factors. And so uh, to see that we still have a large number of, of people receiving these, I think is expected, although they are continuing to go down. So we are making a move in the right direction, uh, but we need to continue to move in that direction. So are the numbers of opioid overdoses on the decline? We aren't sure yet. So uh, the 2018 numbers have not been reported in final nationwide. We do know that preliminary evidence suggests that drug overdose numbers have gone down. So that's drug overdose as a general class. Um, but I have not seen any information yet to indicate whether or not opioid overdoses have gone down. Now, in Onondaga County, uh, we do have some data from the Onondaga County Medical Examiner's Office uh, that suggests that they have, again, creeped up a little bit. So we had in Onondaga County 91 opioid-related deaths in 2017 and 101 opioid-related deaths in 2018. So a little bit of an uptick. Uh, now, all that being said, the numbers have gotten to a point where they are unlike things, anything that we've really seen before, uh, they are very, very high. So at some point, we would expect those numbers to start to plateau or to start to decline a little bit. And that would be a positive sign. But I think important to remember that that's just a first step, right? These numbers have gotten so out of hand, the number of deaths uh, are, are just not like anything we've witnessed before in the U.S. And so we really need to bring that number down significantly. Um, so even if they do start to decline, we still need to continue to make the effort to think, keep things moving in that direction. Well, lately, there have been a lot of headlines and talk about lawsuits and settlements with drug companies. Uh, let's talk for a minute. Let's refresh where, like, where does the blame lay? How did this get started and whose fault is it? It's a great question. And I think that we do have this desire, certainly, to find someone to point a finger at, right? There's a, a lot of people dying. Uh, we're frustrated. And and certainly, did the drug companies play a role in this? Absolutely. Uh, they had products that some companies clearly recognized were addictive, and yet they continued to sell them anyway. They continue to push them. Um, there's even some uh, evidence in, in some of these cases that they tried to use this addiction as a positive thing for like, hey, we now we have all these customers who might be long-term customers. And so, yes, there was a role there, but they are not the only ones, right? So looking at our own selves within the healthcare profession, certainly uh, there were, for a number of years, uh, individuals prescribing opioids inappropriately. Now, these individuals may have had the best intentions in the world of caring for their patients, uh, but we now know that there are certain patients who are at higher risk for overdose, depending on how the opioids are prescribed, depending on how long they're prescribed for, depending on how many we prescribe. And so 
we're trying to get a handle on this from our end to say in the healthcare world, we're doing everything we can uh, for our patients to not give them that increased risk. And then patients as well. We, we encourage that even though this has been the way things were done in the past, it might not be in everyone's best interest to have a, an opioid prescribed for chronic pain. So being open to other potential alternative ways to treat pain is important. And I think that that's a, a, a message that uh, we're continuing to try and, and give to our patients. But at the end of the day, uh, when you look at all those groups, really only one of them came out with billions of dollars. And so do I think it's inappropriate that there's some litigation taking place? No, I think that that's a reasonable step if, if intentions were truly bad. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center about the opioid crisis. Now, the last time you were on HealthLink on Air, we talked about naloxone, the medicine that can reverse an opioid overdose. Have we seen lives saved in our community because people have taken it upon themselves to get trained and, and be able to administer this, this medication? Yeah, so we uh, certainly continue to see patients saved by naloxone. Uh, the number of uh, reversals reported by EMS in Onondaga County uh, actually went up from 91 in 2017 to 101 in 2018. Uh, so our first responders, uh, whether they be EMS, fire, police, continue to have access to these uh, this antidote and they are saving lives with it. And we are seeing... Uh, increases in availability in the community as well. Now, it's harder to get numbers in the community because as someone at home, if you administer naloxone to someone, you may not know like, so what do I do now to report that I reversed an overdose? So most of those go unreported, uh, but we now have naloxone available through a variety of mechanisms in Onondaga County and in New York State. Those include pharmacies where you can get naloxone without a prescription. Those include opioid overdose prevention programs, like the one we have right here at Upstate, where we educate patients on naloxone and provide them with the, pro the antidote to take home with them. And it also includes the work of the harm reduction group uh, Next Distro, who has put together a website in conjunction with the New York State Department of Health, uh, naloxoneforall.org. And this website uh, provides information on how to use naloxone, uh, resources as to where to get naloxone, and lastly, uh, has naloxone physically available for patients who otherwise can't afford it or don't have access to resources that they will send in the mail to those patients. So that's helping reduce the number of deaths. Yes, absolutely. Like. And part of that is still uh, a up for debate. It still needs to be researched. We know that naloxone saves lives. We know that it's a cost-effective way to save lives. We just don't know how many lives it's saving because there's not a great way to collect that data at the moment. Sure. Well, I know you're the um, director of the Opioid Research Center for Central New York. Tell us about what that is. Sure. So the Opioid Research Center is a collaborative effort uh, between Binghamton University and SUNY Upstate Medical University. Uh, and our main goal has been to look at effective methods for reducing overdose death now. So there are there is a lot of ongoing research across the country, certainly to address this, this crisis, uh, a lot of it geared towards new drug development. And that's very important, right? Having new effective pain medications, having new effective treatments for opioid use disorder or for addiction is an important endeavor, uh, but it's one that we recognize takes time, right? We're not going to have a new medication tomorrow that's going to treat this. Uh, and so our efforts are really geared towards 
How do we fill that gap? How do we start to reduce deaths today and increase access to treatment today using research uh, in order to help patients who are suffering with uh, addiction? And so some of the uh, current projects we have ongoing include projects to uh, increase access to naloxone in the community. So we're really trying to do a better job of evaluating community perceptions of naloxone. So do people see naloxone as just an antidote for patients who use heroin, or do they recognize that naloxone is an antidote that anyone at risk for opioid overdose, including patients who are prescribed opioids, should have available? Uh, some of our researchers here at Upstate, like Gina Marafa at the Upstate New York Poison Center, are running pilot projects looking at keeping kids safe. So if we add uh, safe devices for storage to the home uh, and adults keep their medication in a, a more uh, hard-to-access location, are we going to see less kids getting into these products? Uh, and lastly, working with researchers at Binghamton University on can we leverage telehealth? So we recognize that not every hospital in New York State has addiction medicine providers. Uh, certainly here in Syracuse we do, in Binghamton there are, but when you get out in some of the more rural areas, that's just not a resource that these hospitals necessarily have. Uh, so we're trying to leverage technology to say, can we bring that expertise to the emergency department without physically having that person there? And can that help us to increase the number of life-saving medications we're prescribing when these patients show up after an overdose? I think people may have the perception that this is a problem just in the big cities, but that's not the case, right? Oh, certainly not. So when we look uh, across the country as a whole, certainly the number, right, the absolute number of deaths is going to be higher in a city than it is in a rural area because there's more people. But when we look at the rates, so we take that number and we figure out how many people are dying relative to how many total people are in that area, the rates of overdose death in rural counties now actually outpaces that in urban areas. Um, so even though the number of people dying in rural areas is less, the rates are higher. And that's alarming because these are patients who are suffering with this disease, who are overdosing, and who have less resources. Uh, so we don't have places like SUNY Upstate Medical University in small rural areas. And so these patients may have to travel 15, 20 minutes or longer just to get to a pharmacy to get naloxone and maybe hours to get to a program for treatment. And so trying to find solutions like naloxone online, like uh, telehealth, are really important for these patients. Is anyone suggesting to just do away with pre prescription opioids, just get rid of them entirely? I'm sure there are people suggesting that. I don't know that that's necessarily a reasonable approach. So uh, I think what is more important is identifying who is appropriate to receive opioids. So they are an effective pain medication for someone who has a new terrible pain. So if on the way to work you get in a car accident and you break a bone in your leg, you're gonna have a lot of pain. And opioids are very effective at making that pain go away until you can get the treatment that you need to heal that injury. Now, if you have low back pain and you continue to have low back pain, we know that opioids are probably not the best choice. In fact, over time, they can cause a problem what's called hyperalgesia. And what that means is if you have opioids in your system for long enough, the receptors that are responsible for telling your body that you're in pain, your body will make more of those receptors. And now all of a sudden, something that before might have just been a small bother can become a huge pain. And so they run that risk as well as the risk of developing uh, addiction or opioid use disorder, unintentional overdose. Uh, so it's not so much that they should just disappear, but that we need to do a better job of working with our patients to figure out when is a safe time to use these and when is not a safe time to use these. 
Now, you earlier you mentioned um, heroin and fentanyl. That I guess some people start on the prescription opioids, and when those are not available, they may turn to heroin or fentanyl, which are also opioids. Are they still a problem in our community? Or are we seeing a lot of um, use of those? Oh, absolutely. So fentanyl has gotten to the point in the U.S. that it's really kind of replaced or or for the most part replaced heroin on the illicit market. We still still see heroin, uh, but heroin deaths have plateaued at around 15,000 or so um, per year based on our most recent data. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl have vastly overtaken heroin in causing deaths in the U.S. Um, in 2017, the most recent year we have numbers for, um, the number of patients who died from synthetic opioids approached 30,000. Uh, so fentanyl is the prime problem right now uh, as far as uh, individuals who are purchasing illicit opioids on the street. Um, but the approach to these is the same, right? It's still getting patients access to resources to treat substance use disorder. It's still getting patients access to naloxone to prevent overdose. Uh, And then also important to remember that just because heroin and fentanyl are what are in the news, that that doesn't mean that there is no risk to using prescription products. Uh, So patients who use prescription products, especially patients who use higher dose prescription products or who use prescription opioids in combination with other sedatives like benzodiazepines, or who have uh, breathing problems like COPD or asthma, those patients are potentially at higher risk for overdosing just from taking their prescribed uh, pain medication. So we do recommend that those patients also have naloxone available in the home. And we're doing a pretty bad job at that right now in the US. Uh, And so that's one of the big projects that we're trying to work on is to push, hey, just because you're on a prescription opioid doesn't mean you don't necessarily need naloxone. As of today, For every 200 patients in the United States that get prescribed a high-dose opioid, nine of those patients go home with naloxone. That number needs to go up. Well, this has been very informative. My thanks to uh, toxicologist Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what the opioid crisis reveals about the American healthcare system. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In case you have preconceived ideas about who becomes addicted to opioid painkillers, my next guest is in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate, and he made time to stop into HealthLink on Air. Dr. Travis Reeder is director of the Master of Bioethics degree program and a research scholar at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. His most recent book is a personal one. It's called In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reeder. Thanks for having me. Now, your book has been described as a memoir of opioid dependence and withdrawal. At what point during your experience did you realize that you would be writing about it? Oh my gosh. Uh, it was a long, slow dawning. Um, certainly not while I was going through the withdrawal, which was a very traumatic time in my life. But uh, in the wake of it, you know, I, I came out of withdrawal. I was sick for 29 days. And in the wake of that, um, there were stages, right? And the first stage was just like 
blissful gratitude. Like I escaped the grips of this medication, which had really in my mind kind of taken on a life of their own. They'd really gotten their hooks into me. And then I got angry really quickly because uh, I looked back on my experience and thought, how did my doctors not prevent this from happening? How did they not help me to get off this medication they'd prescribed? And then as I gained some distance and cooled off a little bit, you know, I, I finally started sharing my story with some colleagues and some close friends. And they would say things like, you know, you're a bioethicist. Like you, you spend your career looking for ethical problems in the healthcare system and in medicine. Sure seems like you found one. Maybe you could do some good with this. Um, and it took a while to imagine that I might share what felt like a really private, really intimate sort of moment in my life and not just mine, my family's life. Um, but over the course of a couple of years, I eventually published a paper for the journal Health Affairs that got some attention. I did a TED talk. I started speaking more about it. Um, and the book kind of came about organically as a result. Can you tell us how you became addicted to opioids? Well, so, uh, you know, a couple of things that we can talk about. Um, I don't think that I was addicted to opioids. I think I was dependent on them. And um, that's it, it may sound like semantics, but it turns out in my work, I think it's actually pretty important because everybody who's exposed to a high enough dose of opioids for a long enough time will develop dependence. That's how brains work. And so when you flood the brain's opioid system with uh, enough opioids, the brain is a fantastic learning machine and it tries to adjust to that experience so that it doesn't react as violently. And that means that you form a dependence. And when you take away those drugs, uh, your brain kind of screams for it because it became accustomed to it. And that's the experience of, of withdrawal. So you can imagine dependence is just the physiological fact that you've become accustomed to a drug and it precipitates withdrawal. But a really important thing to note is that addiction does not happen to everybody who experiences enough of a drug for a long enough time. We don't know what the exact rate is, but it's somewhere between like one and 10%. A pretty often, often cited number is something like 6% of people exposed to a really addictive drug like opioids will develop an actual addiction. And what that is pointing to is that you develop behavioral problems. You start to crave you have a compulsive, uh, you know, looking for the drug, thinking about it all the time. You might start to act out even in ways that you know will hurt you. So you have bad consequences and you do it anyway. So you risk jail time. You risk losing your family. You risk losing your job, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's like the kind of first big thing, thinking about dependence and addiction. And the reason that's important is because solving each of them takes different tools. If everybody will develop a dependence, then every surgeon needs to know how to prevent it, right? Right. Because that's just how brains work. Whereas addiction is going to happen more rarely, and so we need to have, but it's way more intense. It requires all of this behavioral intervention. So all that to say, um, I developed a dependence, and my doctor should have known that I would, because I had a traumatic injury. I was in a motorcycle accident. My foot was, for lack of a better term, blown apart. And... Um, and they were either going to have to cut it off, they're going to have to amputate, or they were going to reconstruct. And it turns out they were able to reconstruct it, but that took months of uh, multiple surgeries. So lots of re-traumatizing, and that means lots of high-dose opioids for a long time. So I developed dependence over the course of about two months, and then I tapered the opioids over the course of another month. So I spent about three months altogether on some dose of opioids. At what point did you realize that you were dependent? Um, so... I never gave it a thought for those first two months. My only 
real advice from my doctors was to stay ahead of the pain. I had a very severe, very traumatic set of injuries. They were worried about me getting behind the pain and then needing a lot more drugs to catch up to it. And so when I eventually went home from my third hospital stay for my fifth surgery, um, I just watched the clock. And this is a pretty common experience when you when you talk to people who are using a lot of medications to, to medicate severe pain. You hit that four-hour point and you pop the oxycodone because your life is suffering. I mean, that's even if you're medicating, it's more pain than most people deal with just ever. And, and, and that's what severe pain is like. So every four hours, I pop the next pill. Well, we talked about dependence and withdrawal. There's this other feature of opioids, which is you develop tolerance to them. And if you're on them around the clock, the tolerance develops quickly. And what that means is you need a higher dose to achieve the same pain-relieving effects. So every week, sometimes every two, I'd have to call my doctor and say, I'm not getting the same pain-relieving effects. Can you write for a higher prescription? And so they would, and I would take another higher dose. So I did this for two months before any physician said to me, and it turned out to be my trauma surgeon, who I hadn't seen in a good while. He's the one who said at a follow-up appointment, oh my, you're on a lot of pills, way too far out from the surgery. You've got to get off them. And it was only then that I realized I was in trouble. I had no sense that I might be developing a problem. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Travis Reeder, a bioethicist at Johns Hopkins, who's at Upstate to give a lecture. Um, So this experience that you went through, what sorts of ethical issues did it bring to light for you? A lot of them. <laughs> so it turns out that if your job is to look for, you know, ethical and policy issues in healthcare, a, a really good uh, but also awful way to find those problems is to become a patient mm-hmm. in our healthcare system. So the first one that I found, and it was the subject of the first paper I wrote on the topic, was basically that many, many physicians, well-intentioned, technically sophisticated, good doctors, know how to prescribe opioids, have an unrestricted DEA license, so they are entitled to prescribe opioids. They do it as a matter of practice, and then they don't know how to get their patients off the opioids. And so the first kind of argument that I made in the literature was the most obvious claim I think I've ever made in in my career, Um, but it clearly needed to be said. And that is that prescribing responsibly, so prescribing opioids responsibly, requires a plan for deprescribing. So you can't take yourself to be an ethically responsible clinician if you are putting patients on a medication that causes dependence, has a risk of addiction, and then not helping them to get free of that medication. So there you go. Pretty simple claim, but if you want to be a responsible prescriber, you have to see the entire life of therapy as within your purview. So that was the first one. It blew up from there. And so, you know, the book ended up from about four years of research where I got interested in, okay, so that was one problem with our prescribing. What are others? And there are many, many problems with opioid prescribing, which is part of what contributed to the crisis in the United States, uh, the drug overdose crisis. And then I realized that opioid prescribing contributed to that crisis, but solving prescribing won't solve the broader crisis because now we have more people dying from heroin and illicit fentanyl than from prescription opioids on a given year. And so now the crisis has spun out broader than 
the prescriber's uh, purview. So what are other things that we can do to try to rein in the crisis? And that's the full scope of my work now. Because you have to help the people that have already been harmed by this, That right? Exactly So let's right. talk about the ideas for how to solve the epidemic. What are, is it just a matter of prescribing fewer pills or... Absolutely not. So that's one of the crucial lessons that um, if you read about the crisis in the media, you might think supply caused the problem, supply will be the solution. And the reason that narrative is so seductive is because we're told over and over that between 1999 and 2010, doctors quadrupled their prescribing of opioids. And what happened during that time? overdose deaths from prescription opioids quadrupled. It's a perfect trend line match. So we know with a very high degree of confidence that overprescribing a glut in the supply contributed to today's crisis. But we've curbed the supply of prescription opioids. Once we started freaking out nationally about this crisis, we started telling doctors, stop killing your patients. And we scared them and we put out a chilling effect on prescribers. It's not necessarily been good. There have been patients who have been abandoned because doctors are just afraid to deal with these dangerous medications. But it did curb supply. We've decreased the volume of prescribed pills. And in the wake, we did not solve the crisis. It got worse. Overdose death rates have increased faster since we decreased the supply of prescription opioid pills. So it's obviously bigger than that, that one problem. So we're still over-prescribing, but at the same time under-treating pain. That is exactly right. This is the, the real central problem. If we, if we focus on the clinical side here, you know, set aside the fact that there are 2.5 million people with opioid use disorder in the country who need help also. If we think about how do we prevent the healthcare system from adding to that number, well, sure, overprescribing was a problem, but you're exactly right to hear in my story there that our reaction to overprescribing risks underprescribing. Because something still has to be done. You still have to treat people's pain. Absolutely. You have to treat people's pain, and some of that pain will call for opioids. So, my own pain, for instance, I do not look back at my story and say, oh God, the lesson of my dependence and withdrawal is that they should have never put me on these devil drugs, right? Like that is not the lesson of my story. Because you needed that pain control. Because I needed that pain control. I was in excruciating pain. Some people are going to be in excruciating pain that responds well to opioids. And so that means we have these much more complicated questions like which pains respond to opioids, when is their use appropriate, and when it's appropriate, how do we minimize the casualties involved? Would you yourself ever take opioids again? I not only would, I have. Uh, so after I came out of withdrawal, I still had another surgery in my future. Mm -hmm. The hard part of a reconstruction is that oftentimes you have to let the swelling go down for three or six or nine months before you can do the next stage of the reconstruction. So I, they finished putting my foot back together four months after I came out of withdrawal. And it was terrifying as a prospect. I write about this in the book. And I almost didn't do it because it wasn't life-saving. It wasn't an absolute requirement. And my surgeons eventually convinced me, you really need this surgery. Um, and so I exploited my privilege by virtue of being a Hopkins faculty member. I found a really good pain doc, and he helped me think about responsible, minimal use of opioids to take the edge off my pain without over-medicating. And I, I used uh, Percocet, which is oxycodone mixed with acetaminophen. I, I used that for less than two weeks as sporadically as possible. 
And at the end, I did not redevelop dependence. I did not go through withdrawal. And people do that every day in this country, and it's not a big deal to them. Uh, but for me, it was a really important lesson that these drugs are not black magic. They're just medical tools. And like every single one of our medical tools costs and benefits, and you have to be able to weigh them up. Did you explore other ways um, to deal with pain, uh, other non-pill ways, or did you find anything that was effective? Oh, it's such a good question. So in the uh, aftermath of my injury, no. Um, yeah, I was uh, traumatized, largely unconscious, very in, heavily immobile. medicated, immobile. In, right. um, after I came out of withdrawal and began the long-term recovery, I went to physical therapy and, uh, you know, kind of epilogue to my story is that I have an incredible amount of function given the injury I sustained. My surgeon said I would never walk again. When I started walking, they said I may never walk without assistance. You know, I'd probably use a cane for the rest of my life. Um, I went rock climbing yesterday. We have a great gym here in Syracuse. Uh, so I've got an incredible amount of function and I, I give a huge amount of the credit for that to an incredibly good physical therapist who pushed me for months and was very dedicated um, and made me realize that a lot of what I could do depended on how much pain I was willing to put up with and how much work I was willing to do. So physical therapy, eventually expand that out to exercise therapy, thinking about things like breathing and meditation, uh, which sounds really hokey to a lot of people, but this is evidence-based pain therapy. We have a literature on all of these things, yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong. These are evidence-based pain therapies. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about them. I, like everybody else, uh, do not do as well at self-care as I should, but the better I do, the less my pain affects me long-term. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you to my guest, who's been a Johns Hopkins bioethicist, Dr. Travis Reeder. He's the director of the Master of Bioethics program and a research scholar at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Good writing makes the unfamiliar familiar. If you have never experienced a panic attack, listen to Cincinnati poet Kaylee Blair, who paints a vivid word picture for us. Here is her poem, Panic Attack. My first panic attack happened the day my soul left my body, and lodged itself somewhere between Orion's belt and the Horsehead Nebula, where it went for a swim in the gases and the dark matter of those light years of space between Betelgeuse and Rigel. My first panic attack left me ready to cut my heart out of my chest, ready to die, or at least to die trying to hide. Since my first panic attack, I carry a paper bag with me everywhere I go. I can't breathe underwater, and my lungs would collapse in space, but if those were my options, I'd take either over the effort of breathing through a panic attack, because my chest becomes as dense as a black hole. 
my first panic attack revealed to me everything I had yet to learn about my state of being. I am small and infinite and broken. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new investigational drug for Alzheimer's disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.